You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Matthew, over the last couple of years, we're starting at the end of Matthew 13 this morning, and uh, a series I'm calling Near and Far, Moving Close to Jesus. You know, one of our core commitments is a deep spirituality, a deep spirituality. And what I mean by that, if we were to look ahead a couple chapters in Matthew 15, Jesus confronts the religious leaders and he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We know what that kind of spirituality is like, right? We've seen it in others, and, and unfortunately, we've seen it in ourselves. We, we know what to say, and we know what we do, and we know how to kind of follow uh, you know, what's expected of us and go through the motions, but, but our hearts just aren't close to Jesus. We want to live like that. We want hearts that are close to Jesus because people flourish when they draw close to Jesus. Uh, when I was a kid... There was a cartoon that was on TV. I don't know that it's on anymore. I think it was called Superbook. Do any of you remember Superbook? Super, as I recall, it's been a long time, but these contemporary, is a cartoon, of course, and, and um, kids from the modern day would somehow, I think through some kind of Superbook, would get transported back into a biblical story or situation. So all of a sudden they find themselves, they're trying to figure out where they are, and it's like they're next to this camp of people who have a hero or a champion called Goliath. And it's like, oh man, there's stuff going on. And somehow they end up in the story and playing a role in the story. And, uh, and so, um, but, but if you were to imagine, right, if we were to look at the story of Jesus, which is what we'll be doing for several chapters here in Matthew, if you could somehow be thrust into that story, super book style, knowing what you know now, and you're plopped into the situation, and here's Jesus and his disciples over here, and he's teaching and saying these things, and here's you know, his, uh, his opponents and enemies of him saying, you know, we got to, um, you know, denouncing him and all this. You'd say, well, which way am I going to go? Am I going to draw close to Jesus and connect myself with him, or am I going to connect myself with his enemies? And the truth is, I think, we'd like to think, well, I'm not a fool, right? If I get dropped into the story, I'm going to go get close to Jesus, I'm going to align myself with him. But the reality, of course, is that that path was often hard. And many, as we see in the Gospels, people will follow him, great crowds, and then Jesus would start saying things and doing things, and many people would turn away. Right? People are drawn and pull away from Jesus. And sometimes we do that too. We know that's the place to be. We know that's where we have to go. And yet, we don't. We get distracted, we get tempted, we get pulled away from Jesus. Why don't we live our lives in close connection with Jesus? What holds us back? Well, as we look through these next several chapters in Matthew, I want to I consider some of those things. What is it that's pulling? There are crowds of people and many people drawn to him, and they come close and they connect with him and trust him and follow him, but there's a whole bunch of people that are exposed to Jesus and they see him and they get close to him and they say, no, I don't want that, and they go the other direction. Why? Why? does that happen? Well, look, at some fundamental level, we know it's because God's grace is absolutely necessary to draw close to Jesus. But, but as we go through these chapters, we see that there's other things going on. 
other things that encourage people to him and other things that pull people away? What kind of attitudes, what kind of habits, what kind of behaviors do we need to embrace to move close to Jesus? And what are the things that we must avoid and watch out for? Well, let's start this morning at the end of Matthew 13, verse 53. I'll read down to the end of the chapter. This is God's word. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom in these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, Prophets not without honor except in his hometown and his own household. And he didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, I pray now as we look at your word that you would teach and instruct us. Father, we, we need to understand, we need to see what it really says. And Father, I pray you'd help me to say true and helpful things that would point us at the truth of this text. But Father, we also need you by your Spirit to work in our hearts and minds so that we would be both softened in our hearts, open to the things you want to show us about ourselves and about Jesus. And we need strength in our will to change in the ways you want to change us. We're absolutely dependent on you for that. And so I pray this morning you would do that gracious work, that you would magnify your Son in our lives and hearts and in our church for your glory and for our joy in him. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus has gone home. It's a special word, isn't it? Home. It's powerful and evocative. He wasn't born in Nazareth. We've been reminded of that just in the last several weeks as we celebrate Christmas. He wasn't born there, but in that small little out-of-the-way Galilean town, Jesus grew up. We don't know a ton about what life was like for him growing up. He probably didn't have much schooling, at least not by modern standards. He probably wasn't making plans to go away to college somewhere, to strike out and make a name for himself in the world other than regular visits down to Jerusalem for the required festivals at the temple, he probably was in Nazareth most of the time. His dad was a carpenter. We assume he was too. And as best we can tell, he spent the first 30 years of his life there in Nazareth doing what the son of a carpenter would do. Then he left. He started traveling around. He started teaching. Crowds began to listen to him. He began performing miracles, healing sick people, casting out demons, as we'll see next week, feeding large crowds of people with small amounts of food. He left as the carpenter's son. He comes back as a kind of celebrity. People all over are talking about him. People are traveling from great distances to come see him hear him teach, be healed by him. Now he's come home. He's come back to Nazareth. How will they respond to him? Well, the text tells us clearly that two main reactions. We see the first one right in verse 54. Coming into his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were what? What does it say? 
astonished. They were astonished. Literally, it's, it, they were struck out of their senses. We would say they were blown away when they came and heard him teach. You know, that's a common reaction to Jesus when he teaches. At the end of Matthew 7, Jesus has finished the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps his most famous teaching. And when they finish this, it says in Matthew 7, 28, the crowds were astonished as they were teaching because he taught as one having authority, not as their scribes. The teaching they heard from Jesus blew them away. It was not what they were used to. The normal teaching they heard did not begin to compare to what they were hearing from Jesus. It commanded attention. It was remarkable. A number of years, when I was in college, I spent uh, several summers in college, as you know, uh, counseling at Camp Barakal. In fact, I've got a couple Camp Barakal counselor friends here visiting this morning. And every you know, all summer long, we sing, if you've been to Camp Barakel, as many of you have, you sing songs, and you, it's a chapel full of people, and you're, it's mostly just the voices with a piano playing along, right? And it's great. We love singing at camp. But the truth is, after you've been at camp for five, six, seven, or eight weeks, it's the same songs sung in the same way. Every week, it begins to be a lot of the same. Good songs, but, but on Sunday afternoon during summer camp, they have what they call musical, and they bring both sides of the camp together, and uh, campers can come up and sing. And you'll have everything from, you know, little seven or eight-year-olds playing Jesus Loves Me on the piano to uh, groups of kids getting together to sing their favorite song, and it's, uh, it's a nice time. Well, one of these musicals, we get together Sunday afternoon after our big Sunday lunch and after our rest time, and we gather together in the chapel and we're going to musical, which is usually fine, but nothing amazing. And a high school girl got up after a number of songs. She got up and sang a song uh, she had brought a CD with musical, you know, full orchestral accompaniment, and she sang a song um, by, uh, some of you will recognize, that the, there's an uh, all-women's group called Point of Grace, and they sang a song called This Day. It's a really pretty song. And so she stands up and sings this beautiful song beautifully, and it was kind of like, Wow. And this is, you know, pre-cell, you know, no one's, no one's going back listening to their AirPods. The only music we listen to all summer is the songs we've been singing in this way. And then here's this girl singing beautifully a beautiful song with full, it was, it was so striking that uh, at the end of it, the person leading the music house said something to the effect of, could you come sing that again? And she came up and sang it again, and it was striking the second time too. This is beautiful. You might have been there for that, I don't know. Jesus comes into town. They hear teaching all the time. They go to the synagogue every week. I don't even know how often they go to the synagogue, but at least every week they're in the synagogue. Jesus comes along all the places he go, and people go, wow, wow. Remarkable teaching. They are astonished by his teaching. What is he teaching about? We won't take time to turn over, but there's a story, a very similar story in Luke chapter 4. It might be the same experience. We can't know for sure. But Luke tells about Jesus going to Nazareth, and he reads from Isaiah's uh, prophecy about the year of the Lord's favor coming and all these things that God is going to do, kind of messianic kind of things. And Jesus sits down and says, uh, everyone's staring at him, it says. And he says, today this is fulfilled in your presence. Jesus is teaching about, he's insinuating by his teaching that he's the Messiah, God's king to come. He's demonstrating by the power of his miracles. We can probably assume, whether it's the same story as Luke or not, that he's teaching something like that here. They are astonished. It's remarkable. And this is what it should have led them to. Keep a marker here and turn over to Acts chapter 13. In Acts 13, 
Paul, the great apostle, is beginning his first missionary journey. He leaves Antioch, travels down to the coast, sails out to Cyprus, that island in the northeast part of the Mediterranean, and he goes around and he starts teaching in the synagogues. And eventually he ends up before the, the proconsul, kind of the, the Roman governor or leader of this area, if you will, and he's teaching. The guy wants to hear what he has to say about Jesus. Well, there's a Jewish false prophet there named Bar-Jesus, or also called Elymas here, who, who begins to try to distract Sergius Paulus, the governor, and, and lead him from listening to and hearing Paul's message about Jesus. But look at Acts 13, verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you and I would love to, we'd love to hear this, to be there for this. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You will be blind unable to see the sun for a time, and immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Talk about a show of power. You're done. You're done making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. What happens? Verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was, what? Astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, I'm sure the miracle, the blinding of, of Bar-Jesus was a factor. But what, what he, Luke says here in Acts is, when he heard this teaching, he was astonished. He's blown away by it, this story about, and message about Jesus. And he did what? He believed. Because that's what you're supposed to do when you hear the powerful message of Jesus. You're supposed to believe. Sergius Paulus believes the teaching about Jesus. He embraces him as God's Messiah. He finds God's salvation. But back in Matthew 13, in Nazareth, that's not what happens. They've heard the reports, no doubt. Perhaps they've seen some miracles. They've heard him teach. But look at verse 57. And they took offense at him. They took offense. They were, the word literally is they were scandalized. It's a, it was like a, a, originally it was a sort of a trap or a stumbling block, a, a hindrance. Jesus comes, he teaches these things, and it's like they trip over him. It's like they can't, no, no, this, it messes them all up. In a couple chapters, in Matthew 16, there's a famous passage where um, Jesus will tell the disciples, hey, look, I'm about to go up to Jerusalem and be, you know, persecuted, punished by uh, um, the uh, religious leaders, and I'm going to die and rise three days later. And Peter, you remember, pulls him aside and says, no, no, that's not, that's not what's going to happen to you. And what does Jesus say? He says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, adversary. You are a hindrance to me. Same word. You're a stumbling block because, he says, you don't have in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of men. In other words, Jesus says, I've got this path that my Father has put me on that's taking me to the cross to die for the sins of my people, and you're gonna, you're trying, you've got to get behind me because if you stay in front of me, you're going to trip me up. You'll become a stumbling block to keep me from going where I need to go because you're not thinking spiritually, you're thinking earthly. Or perhaps a better-known verse, 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and he says this. He says, we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, same word, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Why is it a stumbling block? Paul comes and he begins to talk about the Christ. He begins to talk about a Messiah and they're on board with that. They're looking for a Messiah too. But he's preaching a crucified 
Christ. And they say, in effect, that's where he lost us. I, I'm with you on a Messiah, but a crucified Messiah, a Messiah that dies, that suffers in such a, a painful and shameful way. Mm-mm. No, it's a, he says it's a stumbling block to them. It gets in the way of them believing. They just can't, they can't embrace a crucified Christ. The people of Nazareth, we see here, they're offended. They're stumbling over, over Jesus and the message he has. Why? Why? It's not that his teaching isn't good enough. It's not, they're not saying, we expected a better teacher from them. His teaching is astonishing. It's remarkable. It's not that his miracles aren't impressive enough. People are traveling from all over the region in a time and an era when people didn't travel very far because they didn't have the means to do so. People are coming from all over the place to see and benefit from his miracles. It's not that his teaching and miracles weren't impressive enough. No, the reason they trip over Jesus and don't and won't embrace him is because they know him. It's, it's really clear. When they start to speak in verse 54, it says they were astonished, and they said, where did this man, this man, get this wisdom and these mighty works? He's not the carpenter's son, Is all this. The end of their statement, again, in verse 56, where then did this man, this man, get all of these things? You might expect better from Jesus' hometown people. I was reading this week that in the 1984 election, uh, another election of a sitting Republican president, uh, Ronald Reagan won 49 of 50 states. The electoral count was 525 to 13. 49 of 50 states. Can you imagine? Uh, His opponent was... uh, uh, the Democratic senator from Minnesota, Walter Mondale. Do you know what state Walter Mondale won? Minnesota, right? He won his home state. And I don't think anybody begrudges him that. It's his home state, hometown boy, right? You got, we got to vote for our guy. As Jesus comes to his hometown, we might expect that here, of all places, people would respect and appreciate him, that, that he could count at least on their vote, at least on their vote, these are my people. These are the people I went to high school with and the people I played in Little League with and the people I used in Boy Scouts with or whatever the first century Galilean equivalents of those are. You'd expect them to say, he's one of us. But the exact opposite proves to be true. Here, among those who know him best, a kind of familiarity breeds a kind of contempt. Their very familiarity breeds a kind of contempt. How does this man, how does this guy, where did he get all these things? This is what the relationship with Jesus has become. We know this guy. He's not that special. We know this guy. He's not that special. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Joseph was Jesus earthly, or so it was supposed, his father, right? He was the carpenter. Probably it's better, the builder, 
there's not much wood in Palestine. Most building is done with stone and brick and mud and this sort of thing. Um, so Joseph is the town builder. They call him the carpenter's son. I, I don't think it's because they can't remember his name. The, the, um, who is it? It's, it's because carpenters not, builders are valuable, but it's not prestigious. It's not special. It's not where Messiah stock comes from, carpenter families. This guy isn't, this family is not Messiah material. We know this guy. He's not that special. Isn't his mother called Mary? Aren't his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas, aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? We know everything about this guy. We know his dad, we know his mom, we know his brother, his sisters. They're all right over there. There's one, that, you know, he lives right over there. We know this guy. He's not that special. In fact, in Luke's version of the story that I mentioned earlier, when it gets to the end of the story, they drag him out of town and they try to throw him off a cliff. That's, that's total rejection. That's worse than impeachment, right? Throw him off a cliff. I wonder how painful, how much more profoundly painful this is for Jesus. They know him. He knows them. It's not that big of a town. He hasn't been gone that long. But he's not, as it turns out, all that surprised. He says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and his own household. His hometown and his household. Not just his neighbors. His own family. No honor. We have other reasons to believe in, various, in the Gospels that, that his own family is thinking something similar. It's just Jesus. We know this guy. He's not that special. In fact, they say at one place, he's out of his mind. He came unto his own, John 1 tells us, and his own received him not. It isn't just an error in judgment. It is a sinful and grievous mistake. If we look back uh, just a couple paragraphs, this months ago for us now since we've been back in Matthew, but if you look up in chapter 13, verse 44, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. Of course, Jesus is the king that's come. Look at verse 44. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a, a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, and then his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In other words, you, a man goes and he finds a, a treasure worth $50 million in a field that he can buy for $1 million. And He's like, I'll sell everything. I'm going to buy that field because it's worth it. I'll do anything I have to do to get that treasure. Jesus says that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. But that's not what the people in Nazareth are saying about Jesus. They don't value him at all. Or the next little parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. I give up everything to have that pearl. Priceless. Priceless. Jesus comes, the very Son of God, the Messiah that's sent, and they say, not worth it, not interested. It's not just sinful. It's foolish. It's a massive mistake. That's what they're doing here. You know, our situation and the situation in Nazareth, of course, are not exactly the same. But I think there's something here for us. 
their offense at Jesus, the obstacle that they stumbled over and, and kept them from moving closer to Jesus could trip us up too. Some of us might be less prone to it. Maybe if you were uh, saved recently or, or saved later in life and um, God's work is just always on your mind. You remember life before Jesus and you were, you, you were, it's just always kind of in front of your mind like how much he's changed your life. Maybe you're less prone to this. But a lot of us, I think, are. I think we're at risk. Many of us have grown up in the church, spent our whole lives here. We don't even hardly remember making a decision to follow Christ. We just were raised that way. Jesus has grown very familiar to us. Kind of always around, kind of always been there. And that familiarity could grow into a kind of contempt. Not, not let's push him off a cliff contempt. Although we've seen that too, probably. Probably you know people in your life who maybe grew up in the church and grew up, it seemed, following Christ, who've reached the point where they've just said, don't want him anymore. Done with him. Probably that's not you this morning, though. Not that kind of contempt. It would be much more subtle than that. It wouldn't be a decision we've made. It would be an attitude that we've unwittingly assumed. We're so familiar with Jesus, he just, he just isn't that special to us anymore. There are a lot of ways that might look. A lot of ways we might see it. It might look like a kind of spiritual complacency or spiritual depression. Maybe just little zeal for God's word or for obeying him. Little interest in meeting with his people. Low priority on seeing the gospel go out to people. There's a lot of ways that might look. But I think this passage suggests another sign that might be more telling and more easily missed. Look at verse 58. It says, And he, Jesus, did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. I think a telling sign that we become so familiar with Jesus that he isn't special to us anymore is that we no longer expect or see his power at work in our lives. We may still go through all the motions. You may still show up every week at church. You might show up for your ministry responsibilities. You might come to Bible study. You pray before meals with your family. But we just don't see his power. We may not even be expecting or looking for his power in our lives. Don't you long for that? Don't you long to to do more than go through the motions, but see God working in your life. How would we know if that was true? We, we know that God is always working. When we are faithless, He is faithful. We know God is power is always at work, holding the universe together, preserving us even at our lowest moments. But, but we want to see God work and power in our lives. What would we see? How would we see that? We'll turn back to where we, we did our scripture reading early to John 15. We'll finish up there this morning. I think the scriptures suggest a useful test. 
John 15, Jesus says right at the beginning, I'm the vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Look at verse 5, John 15, 5. He says, I'm the vine, disciples, you are the branches. Jesus is the vine. He's that, that vine that's planted in the ground, drawing nourishment and strength from it. And the branches must be connected to that vine. He goes on in verse 5, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Here's the key line. For apart from me you can do nothing. If you're not close to Jesus, connected to him, abiding in him, there's no power because there's no life. So we need to be closely connected to him. Well, how does that play out? Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And by this, my Father's glorified. You bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. There's the assurance. There's the strength. They prove to be disciples. How? Because we're abiding in him in a way that his word's abiding in us. We are speaking to him in prayer. He is answering prayer. The Father is glorified. We bear much fruit. And we get this great encouragement of knowing ourselves to be his disciples. I think that a familiarity with Christ could lead to a kind of spiritual apathy, a kind of contempt that doesn't see him as special anymore. And I think one of the, the, the more subtle ways we might see this is that we're no longer really asking God for much or seeing him answer. We have needs. We have concerns. We have anxieties, but we don't bring them to him. We worry about them. We talk to other people about them. We take other steps to resolve them, but we don't bring them to him. He says, apart from me, you can't do anything, and we say subtly, well, we'll see. We'll see. I haven't exhausted all my other options. The answer here isn't to be less familiar with Jesus, right? Not like, well, you know him too well, you should try to forget some things. That's not the solution. What we need, what we need is to draw close to him, I think especially in prayer. Let me ask you this question, rhetorically. What did you pray earnestly for last year and see God answer? Now, I know that God sometimes answers yes and sometimes no and sometimes wait. He's wiser than we are. But what were the items of passionate prayer for you last year? Here's what I think happens. I know this happens too much with me. I think, how much did I pray zealously for last year? Listen, if I, if I think Jesus is special, if I think he is who he claims to be, but you think I'd bring every concern, every anxiety, every need, every problem right to him. i tell you what I want. I want to get to the end of 2021. And if someone says, hey, what did you pray for this year? I say, I prayed earnestly for this, 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 and this. Earnestly, with faith, with confidence that God would answer. So that we might see him work in our lives in power. 
We want to see God work in our lives in power, and I fear all too often he's become so familiar to us, we don't see him as special anymore, and we hardly even ask. My prayer this year for myself, for our church, for you, for your families, is that this year we would be seeking God. We want to see him work for his glory, for the advancement of his kingdom, for our joy, for our life in him. Listen, as, as we grow in prayer, asking God for things, seeking him in prayer, seeing him answered, you will draw closer to him. You will draw closer to him. That familiarity won't breed a kind of benign contempt, but will breed greater confidence, greater joy, greater faith, greater hope. Listen, we need that. Our families need it. Our church needs it. Our country needs it. I'll spring you. Let's, let's press closer to Jesus this year, particularly in prayer, that we would remember and see again and see afresh how special and glorious and good that he is. Father, I pray that you, you would help us. Lord, all too often we... We know the things to say. We know the right things to do. We know how to go through the motions. You're very familiar to us. And yet I, I fear that all too often in our hearts, you're just not that special. I don't think we can change that ourselves. I think we need your help. We need your grace. Father, I pray you, you would move us by your Spirit to abide in you, to know the truth, not, not just as a, a principle on a page, but as a reality in our lives that apart from you, we can't do anything. So we don't try to do anything apart from you. We try to do everything in you, connected to you, for your glory, led by your Spirit. Father, I want for myself, I want for this church, I want for every family and person here this year to live fruitful lives where we see you working in us and through us for your glory and for the good of people. And so, Father, I pray you'd help us to ask you for it, that, that our delight in you and our, our astonishment at you and our marveling, our worshiping of you would be refreshed and renewed. Lord, we need that. I need that. So I pray that you would make that this kind of year for us, that we would draw together close to you as we, we seek your will and ask you for things and see you work by your wisdom and for your glory. My Father, I pray you'd do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been good to be here with you this morning. I'm going to read a couple verses of benediction and send you out. But let me, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you to give some thought and some prayer to your prayers. We want to see God work in our families, in our church, in our community. He's, he's not reticent to do it. He's not reluctant. He's not otherwise preoccupied. So I'd encourage you to give thought and prayer and attention to what, where do we need to seek God in prayer? What, what do we need to ask Him for? What do we need to pursue for His glory and ask Him to give us hearts uh, that delight again in Him?
Jude 24 and 25, I'll send you out with these words. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore.